I want to remind everyone why we're studying this crazy book. Uh, if you've tried to pick it up and, and crack it and attack it, uh, it may have wrestled you to the ground quickly. Uh, you may have been like a duck in water. I don't know. But uh, it can be a challenging book. It's not a long book. But uh, it, is a, it is a scholarly book. Uh, seminaries use it. I think the good ones anyway, uh, a lot, uh, and that was where I first encountered it. I want to share this with you because I believe it can help all of us enjoy our faith and put the pieces of our lives together more because we live in a time of great, uh, swift, uh, what seems like permanent, unending change. Um, I remember seeing recently a video on YouTube of a woman who was interviewed by the BBC. She was way over 100 years old. Um, and this was back in the 1970s, so there's a little bit of grainy BBC video. And the, the journalist asked her, in your lifetime, what's changed? And she said, without skipping a beat, everything, everything has changed. Well, we continue to live through this rapid change. We live in an age of technology, an age of uh, great uh, income inequality, great injustice. Uh, time moves swiftly. It's hard to keep up. Uh, I'm only 44, and I don't know how to do stuff my kids know how to do, just like my parents didn't know how to do stuff I know how to do. They're, they're, life can feel chaotic. We can feel overwhelmed by the powers and the principalities, rulers and authorities. Uh, we can feel like church is um, on its last leg. Uh, but I believe the language of, of this book helps us conceptualize uh, what's going on in the life of the world, in the life of the church, and in our personal, interpersonal lives. Uh, and so that's why I want to, to present this to you. It's life-giving. It's prophetic. And what does prophetic mean? What is prophetic imagination? Well, you may remember it consists of two larger categories. The first is critique. And the other is energizing or amazing. And we'll talk more about that tonight. We've talked about larger kind of basic terms. What is a prophet, an interpreter, a spokesperson? We've talked about uh, what it means to say prophetic. Uh, we've talked about what it means to say imagination. Um, and uh, last week we spent a lot of time talking about prophetic critique. Um, prophecy critiques. The prophet critiques in a very specific way. He's not, or she is not just haranguing, not just complaining, but there's a direction to it. There's a, there's a strategy to it. Critique pierces the official narrative of what Brueggemann calls the royal consciousness. Uh, and we concluded last week with a very bracing video clip of Emma Gonzalez, a student at Stoneman Douglas High School where 17 people were shot, killed in 2018, 14 students, three teachers on national television. She commanded an audience of thousands, millions 
with six minutes and 20 seconds of silence and tears. So you can see up close in that video, she had tears dropping from her chin. The six minutes and 20 seconds symbolized the amount of time that she and her classmates and teachers endured uh, the, the attack. Um, that was a public expression of grief that pierced the official narrative. The official narrative of the royal conscience says everything's okay. Uh, remember Jeremiah criticizes the, the royal consciousness. You say there's peace, peace, when there is no peace. So it's not just, it's not just a crying out in, into the thin air. It's, it's a very uh, strategic and tactical way of speaking that begins to expose the powers and dismantle their system of affluence, oppression, and static religion. That's, the royal, that's what the royal conscience, consciousness is made of. An economics of affluence, a politics of oppression, and static religion. So affluence wants to keep things the way they are because the people in power have it really good. Uh, this is nice being in power. I like this. Uh, and the people uh, whose labor I depend on for the affluence, uh, I want to keep them working hard. In fact, though, we're, we're actually going to uh, make them go get their own straw to make the bricks that, we, that they were already making. Egypt, Pharaoh. Uh, and uh, we love to have God. We love religion. Re religion is great. Just as long as God stays where God is. We don't want an active God. We want a free God. We want a nice God. We want a God who's not abrasive. A God who doesn't surprise us. We want a God who helps prop up the affluence and the oppression. Last week I mentioned the slave Bible. Uh, that uh, white slave holders created to give their enslaved people. Uh, they cut out all the parts that they didn't want in it. It's a, sort of a tattered version of scripture. But if you were enslaved and you had no resources and you didn't have internet, what, what difference? You didn't know the difference. This was the Bible. Uh, slaves, obey your masters. It's in the Bible. So, static religion. A God who stays put. A God on call when we need it. Not a God who shows up unannounced. So, tonight I want to talk about, this, this is going to feel more positive tonight, I think. So la last week was critique, lament, grief, tears, dismantling. Tonight I want to talk about hope, amazement, energizing. This is the, the other side of the coin of what constitutes prophetic imagination. You have to have both. You can't just have one. If we just have the grief, then that's hopelessness. If we just have the hope, then we're not taking seriously what's really going on in concrete terms. We're not, we're not seeing the tears. We're not hearing the cries. We're not recognizing what needs to be dismantled that's oppressing people. So, Brueggemann calls it the emergence of amazement. He says the royal consciousness 
leads people to despair about the power to move towards new life. It is the task of prophetic imagination and ministry to bring people to engage the promise of newness that is at work in our history with God. So, the, I'll give you an example of um, a kind of uh, critique that helps set up and create the conditions for energizing. This is, this is going to get a little bit rough here at the beginning, though. So this is Amos. If you want a good night's sleep, don't read Amos right before you, you turn off the light. Um, Alas, for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, think foie gras. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David improvise on instruments of music. That hurts me a little bit because I really like rock and roll. Um, Who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So you imagine uh, what's happening in Israel that this prophet is critiquing. Uh, can you imagine someone who lived in, a, lived in a home of cedar, feather bed, uh, how they get all this? Well, a lot of people are doing a lot of hard work on their behalf. And instead of re- drinking wine from a glass, they're taking the whole bowl and lifting it up and drinking it. You know, you got half of it's got to be spilling all over the place. They're, But Amos says, even for them, the the future disappears. If they're trying to keep it this way, the Apple are trying to uh, preserve the status quo, uh, preserve the royal consciousness that benefits them, even they are hurt by their, their own affluence. The future loses its vitality even for the powerful, Brueggemann says. And new beginnings become impossible because you don't want a new future. You want what's right now because that suits you. Um, So this all leads to despair. And so you remember Ecclesiastes, and that's another book you don't want to read at the end of the day. Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything, it is what it is, (laughs) y'all. Nothing new is going to happen. You can work. Yeah, toil. Not going to change anything. Well, that's not meant to be read at all times, but that's a voice we need in Scripture. However, it is indicative of a kind of royal consciousness mentality. Nothing's going to change, uh, even if I want it to change. Another psalm that's really probably the most disturbing psalm is Psalm 137. You hear them wailing. There's no hope. It's just despair. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. Uh, There our captors asked us for songs. We couldn't sing. Our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Hey, sing us uh, one of them songs y'all got from uh, back where you used to live before we enslaved you and put you in exile. Sing us one of those nice little funny songs about hope. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. 
And then, and then it moves to the, the conclusion, O oh, daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. The end. <laughs> I'll put this away for a minute, okay? Let's take a deep breath. Now, uh, so that's despair. Um, so we move from grief. There's a little bit of hope in grief, isn't there? I'm going to cry out. I may not know if anybody's listening, but somebody's got to be listening. Uh, Wendell Berry says that uh, that kind of grief and lament is like leaving little breadcrumbs, like a trail of breadcrumbs behind you so God can find you in, in your grief. But despair, uh, that's, a, that's another deeper, even deeper level of darkness. It's the bottom of the pit. Uh, no one's going to answer. Not even God. How do we penetrate despair? Brueggemann offers a few actions that are uh, piercing actions and uh, begin to dismantle despair. One is the offering of symbols. So symbols are not just any symbols, but symbols that contradict situations of hopelessness in which newness is unthinkable. And you have to take, he says, you've got to take symbols that the community already recognizes. You can't just craft something out of thin air and say, here's a meaningful symbol. You have, you have to still, uh, you have to retrieve something from the past, polish it off, uh, and offer it in a re- renewed way. What was it uh, Emily Dickinson said? Tell the truth and tell it slant. Um, and so I want to, I've been talking about individuals. I uh, introduced you to Martin Luther King speeches. And then uh, you know, last week we had Emma Gonzalez. She's an ind- these are individuals. But tonight I want to talk about a community um, that has done something like this recently. You may be familiar with it. Uh, they once wrote a statement that went something like this. To all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who are friendless and wish friendship, to all who are homeless and wish sheltering love, to all who pray and to all who do not and ought, to all who sin and need a Savior and to whosoever will, this church opens wide the door and makes free a place. And in the name of Jesus, the Lord says, welcome. Anybody familiar with the church that uh, wrote that? Yes, that was here. That was First Baptist Church of Asheville in 1938. So here's the interesting part of the story. When we were going through what we what we call the discernment process about welcome and inclusion. Uh, if you were here at that time, you remember that was a, an exciting time and a really scary time and a really tough time. Um. And we had what was called the discernment team who were, you know, made, constituted of members of our church, representative members of our church. We had conservatives and liberals and straight people and gay people and uh, people who were affluent and people who were 
hard, had a hard time rubbing the two nickels together. And, and we put the best of our church in, in a room and said, can you help us talk about this? And uh, our staff liaison of that group was Tommy Bratton. And one day Tommy comes in my office. He said, I found something that might be interesting, might be helpful to us. It's an old statement. And he showed it to me and I said, my God, let, let's share this. This is, this is us. Um, anyway, wonderful gift from Tommy. He found that. He remembered that. Gave it to the group and the group took it and ran it. Well, we have, it's now the preamble to our consensus statement about that decision. You can find it online. Uh, and uh, when we first showed that statement to the deacons, uh, this was in the spring of 2019. I still, I'll never forget, sitting in the dining room, and to my right was a church member and life deacon, Wade Hammond. Um, and, uh, and so we, we projected this statement up onto the screen so everyone could just read it all at the same time. And there was, so there was a, few, you know, a couple minutes of silence while the deacons digested this document. And then all of a sudden, I see Wade inch up to the edge of his seat. And, he, and he's squinting his eyes. And he turns and he looks at everybody and he points. And he said, that's who we are. That's First Baptist Church of Asheville. This is a good thing. How did that happen? We retrieved a symbol of our personality. And from that emerged new life, a new promise. It penetrates despair even today. Now, a second action that penetrates despair is hope and yearning. Hope, he says, is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion. This goes back to the alternative consciousness. Uh, if, you, if you've read all the way through the book, you will, it will be familiar to you his statement that uh, prophetic imagination, uh, prophetic witness is a mindset. So don't just think about a, an individual person who's shouting to the rafters. First, it's a, it's a way of thinking. It's an alternative imagination. So the hope is the refusal to accept the imagination that, that is standard and that doesn't allow a new future. The language of hope, he says, is not optim. It's not mere optimism, but is composed of theological promises. So that is, it, ha it can't just be psychological speak secular language that has to draw from theological, uh, the data we have from Scripture and from the church's tradition. It has to be confessional. Uh, it has to have that, uh, that DNA of faith about it that's going to sound silly when you begin to shout it out uh, in public. No way that's possible. Well, it... It actually is now possible because it's been said aloud and now it's in the public mind. Um, 
And he says, hope is the primary prophetic idiom. It arises from grief, but the speaker who speaks it has to be embedded. One of the things I learned in seminary is preachers have to speak from an embedded position. You get to know the people. Uh, the lay of the land takes a long time to build relationships. You may not really become pastor of the church for seven to ten years, this one professor said. Good luck, he also said. (laughs) There is a way to penetrate the despair. There are actions that we can take. It involves offering symbols. It involves conveying God's promises, even if they sound ridiculous at the time. Uh, and it must come from an embedded position. Uh, the, this penetration of despair cannot come from someone we don't know, we're not familiar with, and don't trust, in other words. So then, then we move in the chapter. Um, we're talking about chapter 4, by the way. Um, he begins to talk about 2nd Isaiah. So we've heard from Moses. We've heard from Jeremiah. Now we're going to hear from Isaiah, uh, what he calls second Isaiah. So open your Bible. It just says Isaiah. First Isaiah. uh, So now we're in the scholar. Just step into the scholar world with me for a second. If you were going to be in a group of scholars, that's how they taught. There's first Isaiah, there's second Isaiah. Some scholars say there's second and third Isaiah. Let's just talk about two Isaiahs, okay? So, first Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39. That's during a time of more of the, the feeling that the exile is um, in, they're in the throes of exile. Uh, Babylon doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Um, there's prophecy, and it's extraordinary. But uh, second Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, is where it really takes off that that language of energizing, language of amazement, the energizing, the concrete hope, because that's when Cyrus of Persia is coming to power. And so Second uh, Isaiah uh, is paying attention, he's reading the news, and he's recognizing that now Babylon's got some company in the Middle East. Uh, and now there's hope that Babylon may be overthrown, and perhaps they'll be free to go back home. Uh, so then, but, but he's very early on the scene of thinking like this. Most people aren't thinking like this. So when he stands up to say, comfort, comfort ye my people, everyone's looking at him like he has lost his mind. Um, maybe not everyone, because his word's called on. Uh, but second Isaiah begins to move past the pathos, the passion, the rage, the, 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 the language of grief, despair, um, think Jeremiah, uh, to speeches of hope, doxology. And I, I want to remind you that the key goal of prophetic imagination, the end game here, is doxology, praise, praising God, giving thanks to God, uh, pouring out uh, the, the joy from deep within our souls, uh, singing, dancing, anticipating 
the promises of God being fulfilled. Um, this is what we begin to see develop in Second Isaiah, or chapters 40 through the end, 66. So his language, Second Isaiah's language is characterized by audacity. Again, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, is like going to someone who's been given a life sentence They're in prison. You're talking to them on that weird phone through the plexiglass and you're and you're telling them, I know you received life, but I'm going to tell you about uh, the possibility of parole. And it's coming soon. And the person on the other side of the plexiglass is thinking, look, I was about to beat my friends in spades and you call me out here for this. It's audacious speech. It doesn't make sense at the time. Second, the language of, of, of amazement that Second Isaiah epitomizes is also characterized by a newness of time. Old certitudes begin to become unglued. Things we always thought, we just took for granted. Uh, those ideas are beginning to become uh, desiccated, uh, dried up. They've lost their life. They've lost their energy. They don't make sense anymore. Uh, So, for example, take, um, I would say that the younger you go on the spectrum of American demographics, the less likely someone is is to believe in the promise of um, uh, if you work hard, you're going to make the American dream. Um, That's a negative example. Uh, On a positive example is I tried to I tried to do this a couple of Sundays ago by mocking the language of decline. Uh, let's just assume the church is in decline, and I've compared that to the Wicked Witch of the East saying, I'm melting, I'm melting. Oh, what a world! And you can just see. Uh, well, hold on just a second. Who says? Did God say that? Uh, I know the evidence is written on a lot of walls, but. Depends on where you look. If you look for decline, you're probably going to find it. But if you, if you look for energizing and prophetic communities rising up out of the dust of older communities or older ways of doing things, and you can see little lights and candles everywhere, all over our state and nation and around the world. So there, there are some old ideas that need to die. Uh, that's part of the language of amazement is, is pronouncing a newness of time when you're within the old time. When else are you going to do it? It's also uh, characterized by God's freedom. The language of amazement assumes God is free even to do something new that God may not have shared with us before or maybe God had not even thought of before. There's evidence, by the way, in Scripture that God changes God's mind. Who knew? Uh, you know, God's uh, thinking, I'm, I was thinking I'm going this way. You know, I think I'm going to go this way. Well, God's free to do. One of my friends, I love this saying, one of my friends says, one of the fringe benefits of being God is that you get to do whatever you want. God can change God's mind. Even God has a new plan now, says the prophet who who speaks in the language of amazement. 
Hope is created by speech. Now that's Brueggemann. If you don't have speech, you're leaning towards despair. Um, what, what was it? What's the New Testament phrase? How are they going to hear without someone to tell them? Where there's no vision, the people perish. That's Old Testament. Uh, you got to have words. It all starts with words. And I don't mean just the preacher. Um, I'm talking about anyone. Anyone with the capacity to think like this. It's a mindset. To speak out of that mindset and that new imagination. Now you're in the world of prophetic imagination. Um, so, uh, do you, it, how many of you were, I guess everybody, just about everybody in here was alive uh, when communism fell? Um, I think about Václav Havel. When I think about poetry and lyricism and uh, a person who gives a people hope with language is is really a a rare instance in world history for someone like him to come into power. Uh, He was elected president right before the fall of communism. Uh, This is Czechoslovakia, by the way. Grew up in Prague. Um, who was he? Was he a, a career bureaucrat? He was a poet. He was a poet. He was an author. He was a playwright. He was in, he was in the, the wrong place at the, at the right time. He didn't even want the job. That's really who you want to be president, by the way. Somebody didn't even really want it. But that was kind of what happened. They were like, Monschlav, you'd be great for this. He's like, I don't think I really no, you, you'd be great. You'd be a great person. Nah, I don't think. No, no. you should do this. Well, okay. <laughs> and um, he, you know, many people say that he should have won the Nobel Prize. He, he was that kind of a person in the world. Um, so here comes the poet who gives us hope starting with nothing more than words and specific kinds of words to be true, but uh, one of the most powerful tools of of the prophet or prophetic imagination is metaphor. Um, Metaphor says it is it's my favorite definition of metaphor, by the way. This is not in Merriam-Webster. A metaphor is, uh, so a simile is, you have to say it's like or as, but a metaphor skips that and just says it is or it is not. There's an even more powerful way to speak in, in, in metaphorically, I think. Um, don't retire simile altogether, but just know that. Metaphor, it just packs a little bit more of a punch, I think. Um, singing is Poetry. And uh, one of the characteristics of the language of amazement. Uh, Singing, Brueggemann says, is what prophets make possible. What does Isaiah 42 say? Where am I in my scripture? Isaiah 42, 
I mean, this second Isaiah, by the way. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. Remember, they're basically all in jail. Who is this loony tune saying this in public? Uh, the energy comes from the song, Brueggemann says, that will sing Yahweh to, to his throne and Babylon to its grave. Uh, how did enslaved people in, in America survive? In part by singing. Uh, and the energy of those songs is still with us. Spirituals. The blues. Rock and roll. <laughs> Um, a lot of uh, a lot of what uh, passes for great music in the 20th century uh, came out of people learn how to sing in church. Uh, singing is very dangerous to the powers, especially depending on what you say when you sing. It's wonderful to be part of a congregation that cares about singing. And invest in singing for people of all ages. It matters to be sure what we sing. But when we sing, we are uh, participating in a prophetic act, activity. He says also, Brueggemann, um, that the, uh, the concept of birth to the barren, this is energizing language. Uh, that Second Isaiah uses. History begins, he says, with the barren. Israel's history. The church's history. Sarah. Rebecca. Rachel. Hannah. Elizabeth. In uh, Isaiah 54. We're still in Second Isaiah, I think. Might be Third Isaiah. I'm not going to get into it. Um, sing, O barren one. Uh, who did not bear. So again, there's a retrieval of an old symbol, an old promise. It's pulled out from the past back into the present. Uh, The barren one will give birth. There will be new life when we thought there would not be. We have new creation to look forward to where we thought there would only be despair Um, and death. This is energizing language. And again, he's saying this at a time when it doesn't make sense. And then he talks about nourishment. Uh, And I love love this section of the chapter toward the end where um, he reminds us of what Isaiah says in chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy wine and milk. Remember the wine that was splashing all over the floor from the big bowls? Well, guess what? Now you get, you did not have the wine, now you get to have wine, and guess for how much? Steep discount, zero dollars. No money, without price. Best stuff. Uh, Vintage. What was Jesus' first miracle in uh, John? 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That's, this is a nourishing language. He, he's, he's saying this is, this is God's promise. Uh, again, reaching back into the past and what was God doing for the Israelites in the wilderness? They had no food. He gave them bread, manna which is a strange substance that sort of appears in the morning, kind of like dew. Little scaly, kind of wispy, crusty stuff. Uh, it's actually a thing. Um, it ha- it's not just made up. Uh, it's part of how Israel survived. Well, the prophet says, well, this is happening again. It didn't just happen back there. It can happen again. It is happening again. Uh, and it's going to happen even, it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to happen even more. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Uh, so, I love, I love this portion. Chapter 4, pages 76 through the end of the chapter, is this section on nourishment. Now, Brueggemann says, the energy for which people yearn is precisely what the royal consciousness cannot give. Only God supplies this energy. And uh, we, we really only hear about this God through the person and, or the people who make God's, who say these things aloud at great risk of themselves and their reputations uh, and who, uh, who live it out. So, um, I hope you're getting the sense that I believe we're one of those kinds of communities. And, uh, and it's not just one thing, it's many things. Um, and I, that's one of the, the lessons that Brueggemann wants us to get from this book. And so if you read all the way to the end, you'll, you'll see him saying explicitly, this isn't just about one ministry in your church. Uh, this isn't just about a person who people think of as prophetic. Uh, this could be the finance committee that this could be uh, I suppose it could have been the committee on committees Uh, sorry old joke Baptist joke Um, but his point is any part of the church's life can be prophetic a whole church can be prophetic expressions of the church can be prophetic it depends on the mindset of the people gathered. Have, have they the capacity to critique in these specific ways that dismantle the powers, that allow for expressions of grief, that recognize uh, the, the threats, uh, that take seriously the death with which people must contend, um, that recognize what the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers are doing to them or to others? Uh, Do they have the capacity to speak the language of amazement, to catch this energy, this divine energy of hope, poetry, um, expressing uh, the the hopes of God in in public in ways that capture people's imagination? If, If you've got those two things... The critique and the energizing, uh, you can be any, in any part of the church's life, 
and uh, you're, you're opening the door to prophetic imagination. Um, that's where all this moves. So. And in our remaining weeks together, we have two more after tonight, I want to keep offering examples to you of what this looks like. Uh, I think that's probably the best gift I can give you because the book, again, is pretty thick. Uh, the terms, anyway, are thick. So I want to, to keep showing you what, what does this look like? What is this great scholar, Walter Brueggemann, uh, saying to us? What, is, what does he want this to... What are examples? In fact, he has a chapter full of examples, if you have the book. If you want to read toward the end, it's kind of like an answer key. So um, anyway, I want to emphasize finally, and then uh, it, time's up, that... Uh, this kind of language, of poetry, lyricism, artistry, is threatening to the empire. He says totalitarian regimes uh, fear the artists. I don't know if, if you guys have heard about uh, the North Carolina legislature's recent um, withdrawal of funds for distinguished professorships in the UNC system uh, only for the humanities. Only for the humanities, not for STEM. Science, uh, technology, engineering, mathematics. They get to keep their distinguished professorships. It's the humanities. We're going to withdraw that. So there's still some funds out there for them, but it's really just a kind of, mm, we're going to take this away. Well, that's the royal consciousness. They're threatened by humanities. That's why the humanities are so important. Can you imagine how much different Elon Musk would be if he'd taken some classes in the humanities? Uh, we, we need this help. So I want to end, end with a poem that is etched, it's embroidered, and it's hanging from a wall in a 17th century chapel in Cambridgeshire, England. I learned this about this poem from Malcolm Geith, a really interesting guy, G-U-I-T-E, Malcolm Geith. You might look him up. Uh, this village, Cambridgeshire, has a reputation for radical hospitality for centuries. And here's the poem that hangs on the wall in the, in the chapel there. It's by George Herbert. I love George Herbert. Ah, my dear angry Lord, since thou dost love, yet strike. Cast down, yet help afford. Sure, I will do the like. I will complain, yet praise. I will bewail, approve. And all my sour sweet days, I will lament. And love. It's, we have 15 minutes before 7. Uh, we'll take a couple of questions. Some of you may need to run uh, to choir. Um, anyone have a question? Leah has a mic, so you can get that on the recording. Right? Anything that's bothering you? Anything that's tugging at you, anything that uh, you've heard that you don't understand, uh, or if anything has struck you that you'd like to say, I like this idea. Now's the time. Count. Um, I'm not sure, but what I was thinking about when you were talking that uh, prophetic criticism leads, should lead to doxology, right? And so I keep thinking in terms of the circle of communication. We, we 
receive information, then we react and respond again. So I'm curious in terms of what your thoughts might be about does this uh, prophetic criticism ever change? Do we just get to one point of doxology and then immediately go into another prophetic critique? <laughs> what is, you know, is there, you know what I'm asking. Don't you? Think? <laughs> I, I want to say, I think it depends on the entity we're talking about. So are we talking about a nation, uh, an organization, a church, a community, an age? They, they all have kind of cycles of life and death, of ups and downs. Um, and I, I want to say that there, there are times in, in that, that spectrum of experience that call for different things. So when the, it's not always that the royal consciousness is just absolutely brutal, you know. Right. Uh, but, uh, but, but even then, it deserves critique. Uh, there, it's not always that um, when, when the critique has come and it has led to the piercing and the dismantling and newness that comes in behind it, um, you, you can't... Uh, Sing, I don't know examples of you sing and dance forever. You know, something happens again. Uh, something becomes exploited or perverted, uh, destroyed, um, and and you have to you have to start again. Um, I think, in the grand sense, the story of Scripture uh, depicts. Um, history moving finally towards doxology. So that's uh, that's what we have to look forward to. So the, the doxological moments in this mortal life are glimpses of that. Right, that's, that's exactly what Thank you for your question. One last question. Thank you. Bonnie. When you were mentioning about the uh, Czechoslovakian poet, I thought about um, Zelensky, and I thought, what is the role of the comic? I mean, aren't they the prophetic imagination of the comic? And he was a comedian before he became the president and great leader of uh, Ukraine. I love that question. Thank you. Um, great. This is great. Um, I love comedy. I'm a student of comedy, uh, funny family, grew up in a funny family. If you, got, if you wanted attention, you had to be funny. So I had to learn from an early, early age, if anybody was going to listen to me, I was going to have to make them laugh first. Um, I think that's a, it would be wonderful um, to think about just, to think about uh, comedy as a means of piercing. Uh, it may in some ways run alongside lament. Um, the best comedy punches up um, and mocks the powers, uh, mock, mocks our stupidity, um, but in a way that uh, exposes it and, and it's a constructive in, in the end. Um, 
I'm trying to think of how. Uh, so humor itself is a liminal where it's a word that has to do with humidity. Uh, it's an in-between space. It, it, it's very, uh, the humor by definition unsettles and pulls us out of spaces of certainty um, where something new is, becomes possible. So I think it really is. I, that might be a question for Brueggemann. Why didn't you put comedy or humor in, in here. Maybe I write a new chapter and add that because I think that's right along those lines. The, the, best, um, the best book I've read on this for, the, for like seminarian type people is um, Preaching Fools by Charles Campbell. He was a teacher of mine and uh, I suffered for doing the index of that book uh, once upon a time, but I needed the money. So, um, it's a wonderful book, and uh, he talks about, he takes that verse about I'm a fool for Christ and turns it into a book. Uh, and he turns it every which way. Um, he tells stories about holy fools. These were characters across the age of the church who were very disruptive, but they, they were disruptive in very targeted ways. Uh, so, for example, one of my favorites is Simeon the Holy Fool would show up to church and throw peanuts at the preacher and at the candles uh, as a protest to the, what he saw as corruption in, in the church at the time. So can you imagine somebody coming to our church and sitting on the front row and taking a bag of, of peanuts and trying to knock out the candles or trying to land it in my mouth while I'm <laughs> preaching? Um, so, but... That's comedy. Yeah. <coughs> I was just going to say, historically, it's the court jester who speaks truth to power. He said, how's this how? I said, historically, it's the court jester who speaks truth to power. Wasn't that also a pretty precarious job to have? If you, if you didn't, if you crossed the line, you, you might lose your head. <laughs> yeah. So, well, that puts you right in line with the prophets. So this is Betty Towery. Last end was always poking politically, and and it was it was wonderful, and everybody laughed at it, and some people didn't understand why they were laughing, but it was it was a good description that went to a lot of people. And then yeah. they canceled the show. And then it was canceled. <laughs> because it was too. <laughs> John Stewart has agreed to host the Daily Show from now to the election. And the millennials in my family are saying, Oh, yeah, really? Like oh. Them through. oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, just, in the New York Times now. <laughs> John Stewart's back. All right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we had, we had one, oh. one person who used to come to the church. Every Sunday, he'd sit on that front row, and he wrote notes to the ministry. He would walk right up there during the sermon. And <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard about that person. Thank you all. Next week, uh, we are going to talk about Jesus. So.